in our letter of joy written by Paul the Apostle. Philippians chapter 1. I want to say what's happening to our family in Ventura. Let's get a shout out to Ventura. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and pray before we begin. <clears throat> Father, we come to you, Lord, just uh, in need of seeing you as uh, the one who is to be worshipped, Lord. We, we admit we, we oftentimes replace uh, our worship of you for other things, and we come, and we just want to be transformed. We want our eyes to be set clearly back on you, Lord. We pray that right now, God, through your word, you would speak to our hearts and you would transform us, Lord, by the renewing of our minds. We need your Holy Spirit to do this, Jesus. We ask that you would do that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm going to go ahead and read Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 8 through 11. The title of what we're going to look at today is Joy in Gospel Growth. Paul, the apostle who's the author, writing from uh, basically house arrest in a Roman area, he writes to a group of believers living in the region of Philippi, Roman territory. In verse 9 he says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And uh, the big idea that we're looking at today is this theme of gospel growth, uh, maturity. We use this word gospel quite a bit. It kind of has a resurgence in, in our current generation. Um, but what does it mean to grow in the gospel? How do we measure that? How does that maturity look in practical ways? Can it be measured? And what's the power behind it? That's really what the theme of what we're going to look at today. And as I was thinking through this theme of maturity and growing... I couldn't help but think back to this past week. My wife and I were sitting down with our youngest daughter, Charlotte, who's three years old. She um, is uh, cute as can be. I'm a little partial, but um, she's told all the time that she looks like Shirley Temple. She's uh, blonde hair, tight, tight, curly hair. Uh, go figure. I don't know how I had a Shirley Temple offspring. Um, <laughs> But she has the cute factor working for her, which actually works to her advantage sometimes because she's our child that requires the most work and it kind of gets her out of things every now and then um, when she looks at me with her big light eyes and uh, says, I'm sorry. Oh, okay, that's fine. That's all I need. Um, but this past week, we're watching a home video with her, and uh, the moment that we turn, we press play, I could immediately see the growth that she's made. Sometimes because she's our youngest child, if you're parents, you know, sometimes when they're, when they're young, it's hard, to, it's hard to gauge if they're actually growing. They seem to be in baby phase for quite a while. Um, she's been in baby phase for a while. She's soon to be our middle child. We're officially having 2.5 children now. 
Um, we have one in the oven. And, um, but we're watching it, and the moment I turn it on, I can see how much she's grown. And she's back in diapers, no hair. And the funny thing, though, is she's doing the same thing she still does. I press play, and the music starts pumping in the video. MC Raw Bass, it takes two to make a thing go right. In the background, I have no idea who put it on. But uh, it was a big song back when I was in eighth grade. You should check it out. Um, it takes two to make a thing go right. She immediately starts running in circles like she's on a mission. I have to dance. I just I have to dance. Her hair says it all now, like uh, the tight curly hair. It just says, I want to party. And um, <laughs> by God's grace, she will not be, uh, a, a, barring a miracle from God intervening in her life, she will be in clubs by 16. I'm just praying against that. Um, because she loves to dance, and she's our lightest, whitest kid, but the most soulful groove in all of our family. She's running around, dancing in circles, and, and we're calling her, Charlotte, Charlotte. She looks up, and she just keeps head down, running in circles. She falls down like five times into the tree, into the presence. She gets back up, keeps running. It's hilarious. I wanted to show it, actually, but my wife said, it's, they're not going to think it's that funny, and we might get called in by CPS, so... Um, but this idea of growing and being able to measure growth, that's why it's so important to take videos and pictures of your kids when they're young because you look back and you realize how different she is now to what she was, how much she's grown. And I think one of my concerns personally is that I could stand up here and talk to you about gospel growth and how it works and how the gospel changes us, but not be changed in my heart. I could be speaking a message and, and, and very excited about something, but is it really changing me? In the same way, we've been blessed by God to grow numerically, but, but are we growing in numbers as well as growing in depth of transformation personally and whole and corporately as a church? How do we gauge that growth? How do we measure that growth? I think Paul gives us a couple of ways that we can measure it. He shows us in his prayer to uh, these believers in Christ in Philippi. He shows us in his prayer how we can measure it. And he also, also shows us the power behind this growth. How we can measure it and the power behind it. Um, he, he likens Christian maturity to botanical growth. Look at verse 11. He says in his prayer, I'm praying that you'll be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus. He likens Christian growth or gospel growth to that of like a plant life growing. It goes through stages. First, the seed of of the gospel is planted into the soil of our hearts. The Holy Spirit comes in, and when the Holy Spirit comes in, he brings transformation. That's what he does you can't not help but being transformed by this holy God who comes in to live inside of us. And he says, similar to plant life, I'm praying that you would bear fruit. That's the metaphor, the picture that Paul gives us is, is a plant life that's going through stages, through life changes. Similarly, in um, Galatians chapter 5, we're told that uh, the fruit of the Holy Spirit living inside us is what? What's the fruit of the Spirit of God? Love. He he likens growth and the Spirit of God living inside us to fruit. In the same way Jesus says in John chapter 15, that as you abide in me, you'll bear much, what? Fruit. 
Apart from me, you can't bear fruit. So all throughout scripture, there's this theme of growth that's likened to, similar to the picture of botanical growth or plant life. Now, what then is this, is the fruit of growth in our own life? What is the fruit that Paul is praying for? What does it look like for you to be growing? How do you know? Is it by how much knowledge you have? Is it by how pure we are? Is it by our, our level of holiness? I think all those are aspects to the Christian life and very important aspects, but the first thing that Paul prays for to gauge or to measure growth in the Christian life, he prays in verse 9. He says, And it is my prayer that your love would abound, would overflow more and more. The reason is, is for a few reasons. One, abounding love is is a process of the Spirit of God, who's the Spirit, the seed of God planted in our life. As the Spirit of God is planted into our hearts, it begins this process. That's not a natural process. By nature, we're selfish, self-absorbed people. But as the Spirit of God comes into our lives, it's inevitable that the Spirit of God will produce this love. But what we have to understand is, it is a process, It happens over time. It's gradual. So as we come in, we understand, I fail in areas of love, areas of of generosity. When people criticize, maybe I'm quick to defend myself. When people come against me, I'm quick to come back. But what you have to understand is that the Spirit of God is inside of you. He's transforming you into the image of Jesus And it's a gradual process. That's why Paul prays for it to happen. These were a loving people. They're known for their love. They're known for their generosity. Paul actually brags on them to the Corinthians, saying that the Macedonians or the people in Philippi, they give more than everybody else, and they serve more than everybody else. But Paul's letter is addressed to, or for the fact of, restoring relationships. Because externally, although there was much service and giving happening, underneath the surface, there's bickering and fighting going on. He actually names two women who are getting a little catty with each other. Just so, in case you, you, you uh, don't know it, uh, these d- women actually, I know women never get catty with each other, but for some reason it's happening in chapter 4. And they're kind of uh, vying for position within the church. And there's jealousy. And as a result, Paul addresses them by name, encouraging them to love one another in humility. So the question is, why does Paul pray for love? And we first say that abounding love is the process of the Spirit of God living inside us. But not only is it the process, it's also the redeeming purpose of the Spirit of God. It's the redeeming mission of the Spirit of God in our lives. We were created in the image of God. And this God, who is the very definition of love, existed in in a community of loving relationship from eternity past before time began, as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, equal in essence but differing in roles and in mutual submission to one another. God, who wanting to share his love, 
creates man, our, our, our first parents, Adam and Eve, as image bearers and us subsequently as image bearers of God. That's why you desire to be loved. That's why you desire to love. You're created in the very image of God who is love. Now, as image bearers of God, our first parents, Adam and Eve, enjoyed perfect fellowship and union and harmony with God and with each other. Their marriage is perfectly beautiful. Their relationship with God, perfectly one and beautiful. But as the tempter, the serpent, the devil comes in to tempt them, they instead eat of the fruit of sin and of rebellion against God. And as a result, their love is tainted. As a result, it breaks the natural order and reduces love to a self-focused, self-consumed type of love. Subsequently, our love becomes tainted. We then love so that we can receive something from one another or from each other. All of our songs, all of our movies, all of our marketing revolves around this self-loved, self-absorbing type of love instead of God's sacrificial love. And although we exchange, oftentimes, the love for lesser things in the place of God, we still, as image bearers of God, are consumed with constantly being on a search for love. And that's why... A lot of times, as a result, we exalt people to the status of Savior. We look for somebody not just to love, we look for somebody to save us from our hurts, from our past abandonment, from our wounds, from our emptiness, from our loneliness. Subsequently, we end up ruining these people by abuse and using them because we find out quickly I married you. I got together with you. I saw you in my life as a possible savior to save me from my own personal hell of loneliness or abandonment. But you're not able to do that. So I have to be done with you. Or I squeeze you and try to squeeze you into a mold and it ends up ruining you. The reason being is because nobody is able to bear the pressure of being God but God. Uh, one author who won the Nobel, I'm sorry, the Pulitzer Prize uh, for his book uh, called The Denial of Death talked about this type of romance. We replace God in our evolutionary theory. We look for something to hope in, something to uh, give us meaning and worth and value. And as a result, it's this apocalyptic romance. We need something to v- divine to pour our love into or to love us perfectly. We we're looking for a hero, a savior, something to redeem us. Ultimately, we want redemption, nothing less. What we realize quickly, probably the longer that we live, is that if nothing in this world, as C.S. Lewis says, can satisfy me, maybe I was made for another world. Now, this love brings us to enslavement. We become enslaved to our other lover gods. It ruins our, our fruitful love that 
God says that that Paul says here is the is the uh, the the measure of maturing, the measure of growth. Now, abounding love isn't just the process and um, the 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 work, the mission of the Spirit of God in our life. It's also the proof. Paul says again in Galatians chapter five that the fruit of the Spirit of God living inside us again is love. And as a result, flows joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control and all that we desire in our character. But love is the driving force. Also, Paul prays for love for them because love, he says in Galatians, is actually, get this, we could, we could end here. But I'm not. But we could end here. Love, Paul says, is the fulfillment of the entire law of God. That if I'm loving people, I'm not sinning against them. If I'm loving God with all of my heart and mind and strength, I'm not sinning against them. Subsequently, I'm not using them. So Paul prays for this love. But why would he pray for this love? Lordship, this sign to be the Lordship of Jesus Christ. How do, we, how do we grow in love? He says, first of all, first word he gives there in verse 9 is, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with, what's the word? Knowledge. Notice that love, growing in love, is not merely sentimentalism. He doesn't begin with, I pray that you would grow in love, and that starts with feeling something. He said, you first have to know something. And the word knowledge there is a knowledge and an intimacy and acquaintance with the love of God. That's what he talks about. Now, in our era, we live in a postmodern era, if it can still be called that. Um, the idea is that you can't know anything truly. There's a skepticism of all foundational truth. I read a tweet this morning that said... Um, uh, if a postmodern tree falls in the postmodern forest and no one twitters about it, did it really fall? <laughs> and I think it's, it's pretty funny because in our modern era, we're skepti- skeptical about any foundational type of truth. That's ushered in during the, uh, during the modern era around the, before the 17th century. It was ushered in by... Uh, Rene Descartes in his Cogito Ergo Sum, where he replaces God as being the primary way that we know things with self. I think, therefore I am. As a result, uh, naturalism falls over any type of supernatural work and mystery of who God is. Everything is reduced to time, space, energy, and matter. Enter into, after that, um, postmodernism, which takes it to its extent, but then scoffs at and is skeptical at any type of foundational truth. What Paul says first is, you need to know something. There is foundational truth. Jesus said, sanctify them, Father, by your word. Your word is truth. I was on a flight home a couple weeks back, um, sitting next to an attorney who was a Jewish man, great guy, and also a practicing Buddhist. And um, as we were as we were talking, it's 
funny because I had a professor the same way. And um, as we're talking, he, he was talking about his, we started talking about Jesus. We started talking about the gospel. And, and he, he started to make claims that saying, he, of course, all the skepticism that he had of any type of foundational truth and, and what was wrong with the gospels. And I said, you know, what's funny is that um, if you look at Jesus and his followers who are devout Jewish men, what would it be that these men who are devoutly Jewish, that is their heritage, their cultural religion, after the death and, 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 and supposed resurrection of Jesus, if he did in fact rise, I'm talking to him in this way, they completely turn their back on their Jewish heritage and they begin to follow a 33-year-old man who claims that he's the Messiah. And they stake their life on that. He said, well, people do crazy things. I said, True. But would you ever die for a lie that you made up yourself? There's foundational truth. And then I said, did you know that there's an attorney by the name of Simon Greenleaf? I think he started the the school of law at uh, Harvard. um, That he set out to disprove the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And during his two-year mission to disprove the evidence, he actually became a Christian because he said, based on the laws of jurisprudence... The evidence alone is enough to state, by far, Jesus must have risen from the dead. The eyewitness evidence alone. And so he said, I didn't know that. Foundational truth is essential. But what Paul is saying here is not just some type of knowledge that we should have, but a knowledge, an intimate acquaintance with who Jesus is. That's why I just pointed him to, I said, I just encourage you to read the New Testament and read, about, read Jesus yourself. Because as one hippie said in a documentary I read recently, he said, I always thought Jesus was like a drill sergeant. But when I read the Gospels for the first time, I just thought, man, Jesus is so cool. (laughs) He's way different than I ever thought he was. Now, this type of knowledge comes as through the word of God. God reveals who he is to us, his love to us. It's the love of God for us on our behalf then that transforms us into live lives of fruitful loving. We fail to love people, though, because we fail to see the love of God on our behalf. Either we fail to see the deep wretchedness and wickedness of our own hearts, and as a result, we act in pride or unforgiveness with other people, or we fail to see the deep acceptance that we have in Christ, in faith in Jesus, and we respond in fear of man towards people. We spend our days subsequently serving people rather than first serving God alone. And then our love for God resulting in humble service and love towards people. The danger, though, is that God is not calling it, Paul doesn't pray that they would have knowledge for knowledge's sake, because what does Paul say about knowledge? Knowledge puffs up. By itself, knowledge makes one proud. But love builds up. It edifies. Paul's not praying that they would have some, that they would, because the reality is, is that there's a lot of people in churches primarily who know verses and who know doctrine but are still just as cold and arrogant, still just as uh, defensive and proud, and lack in loving people. 
this thinking about the movie uh, Good Will Hunting, where Robin Williams' character, he's the, a counselor of Matt Damon, who's this young genius, and he's sitting there with him. And uh, Matt Damon, of course, has been going through counselors. Harvard wants, th- wants him because he's a genius. They want to use him, but before they use him, they want him to get his mind right. Um, he's a tough street kid in the movie, and uh, he approaches Robin Williams the same way he's approached everybody else, just putting up a veneer and kind of cause, pointing him back to look at his own self. And he, and he does cause Robin Williams to kind of shrink back and think over his own life and, and uh, frustrates him. But then they come back to a meeting again. They're sitting there by the lake, and Robin Williams sits with them, and he says, you know, Will, you, uh, what you said, it, it, it really made me mad, and, and it made me... It was searching. I, I thought about it the last couple of days, and I lost sleep over it. But then I came to the conclusion uh, of something that brought me great peace, and I haven't thought about you since. And he says, what's that? He says, you're just a punk kid. He says, I could ask you about art, and you could probably tell me all about Van Gogh and all about Picasso and all about art history, but do you know what it smells like inside the Sistine Chapel? He says, I could, tell, I could ask you about love, and you'd give me all the reasons for love and why it's essential and why we need it, but do you know what it's like to wake up next to the woman that you've spent all of your life with and to see her lying there and to know what, what, what marriage is like? Do you know that? He says, I could ask you about suffering, but, and you'd give me all the answers of suffering and, and the historical factors to it and the psychological essence of it, but do you know what it's like to sit by your wife's bedside while she's dying of cancer? could ask you about war and you could tell me all the history behind war and the wars that we've all that all the wars we've ever fought but do you know what it's like to be on the battlefield while you're while you your friend your common soldier is lying in your arms and his head is wounded and he's looking for you at, up at you for his last breath do you know what that's like you know everything in theory but do you know it from personal experience Paul's saying, I'm praying that you would know God, that you would have this knowledge of Jesus in a way that would transform your very life. But it's not just, again, it's not cerebralism only. I mean, it's not sentimentalism, something we should feel, but it's also not just cerebralism. It's not only knowing what is true, it's also knowing what, is, what to do. Look at verse 9, he says, And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. See, so the big test is how we put this love into practice Monday through Saturday. Escaping this dualism that we see in sacred versus secular and seeing all of life lived before the face of God. Coram Deo, they used to say. Everything is before the face of God. And how we put this love into practice, it happens by reason of use. It happens by just living and doing. This uh, word, discernment, is used one other time in Hebrews chapter 5. It says... Verse 14, but solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Because of practice, because of practicing this love of God that they know and that they're starting to know about, practicing it as fathers, as mothers, as husbands, as wives, as workers, co-workers, bosses, you may fail but the practice trains your senses to know what to do and how to do it. 
And a few of the ways that this love is evidence in our life, one, it's evidenced by our love in our obedience to God. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, John 14. The idea is that we focus on, I want to, be, I want to grow, I want to be pure, I want to be holy, but Jesus says, I want you to focus on loving me. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. On the other hand, it says that if you're saying that you love me, the thrust of your life is that you want to obey me. He also says, John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. I'll make known myself. You'll know me as you love me. If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, and my Father will love him and will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. It's not only evidenced by the way that we obey him through our, the love and our obedience, but also love in our speech. That's a big thing throughout this. And Paul over and over tells the Philippians, I love you. I'm thinking about you. You're a blessing to me. When I think about you, I'm confident that God has begun a good work in you. He'll be faithful to complete it. How do you practice this love in your speech? Fathers, how do you practice this love in your speech? It is so vital, our first ministry as Christians, husbands, fathers, and then our vocation, that as we're pastoring our children in our home, we're also um, affirming them with our words, affirming our wives with our words, wives affirming your husband with your words, love in our speech. It's also evidence as we look at love in our hospitality, in our mission, And in our Sabbath, it's essential that you Sabbath. Recreation, the word recreation, is where we we get the word recreate. It's essential that you take time away and that you have love in your solitude. So vital as we see Jesus alone with his Father, praying. Why? Because we have this tendency in our busyness for to turn inward, for love to become self-absorbed and self-consumed. All of us do, right? This past week, even on, on Wednesday, I was walking and I went for a walk and just read a path by my house. And, and just that sense again that this whole thing is way bigger than my story. God, you are way bigger than me. I want to, I, I receive your love for me and it makes me want to love other people. It's not about me. I remember that now. I forget that and I need love in solitude. Also, not only love in our speech, but love in our, the way we show it, our practice. This, again, is practical ways of how we love, discerning love. How do we do this? How does Paul do it? Paul's letter, he, one, he prays for them, and two, he writes a letter to them. Practical ways. I'm thinking about you. I'm loving you. I'm showing it. And in our modern day of text and email, I love to receive emails and texts from people uh, sharing verses with me and encouragement but when's the last time you had a letter written to you? 
When was the last time you wrote someone a letter and said, I see God's evidence of fruit of God's work in your life. I'm praying for you. I love you. I appreciate you. You tend to hold the letter a little bit more carefully than you would a text or an email, right? But nonetheless, text or email or whatever it might be, in what ways practically are you showing, evidencing your love for your children, for your wife, for your parents, for your coworkers, for the people that you minister with, for people that you're on mission to and with? It's an important question as we pray through how do we practically put our love into practice? But not just fruitful living. Fruitful living isn't the only measure. That's the primary measure that Paul says, I'm praying that your love would abound, that you would have fruitful, loving lives. But in verses 10 through 11, he also points to fruitful living in addition to fruitful loving. He says in verse 10, it's my prayer that your love would grow, knowledge and discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. There is coming a day of harvest where Jesus, he'll restore all of creation. He will redeem. But part of his redeeming and restoring process is his judgment. God is a just judge who allows us the opportunity to uh, run to him, but he'll bring judgment. He'll bring justice and making everything wrong right again. Now, some are thinking, how could a loving God also be a judging, judgmental, just God? Um, Miroslav Volf says, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is legitimate, only it comes from God. And he says, in a sense, as he summarizes, if God is not the one who rights all wrong, then that only leaves us with the, with the responsibility to do so. And as a result, we will bring violence. We will bring the sword if God does not. God is a just judge. He must, because he is holy, judge. But also, he will re- receive all of the fruit to himself at the final day. And so what we see here in verse 10 is that fruitful living comes as we're tested. He says in verse 10, I'm praying again, that you would approve what is excellent and so be pure. The word pure means sun-tested or tested by the sun. It's the idea that... Um, There's testing happening and there's fruit growing as a result of being scorched and tested by the sun. The reason why God will allow tests and bring tests in our life is because, Paul says, I'm praying that you would approve of what is excellent. We have the tendency to replace the excellent one, God, with what is just simply good. We take good things like relationship health, occupation, our, our uh, recreation, children, um, marriage, money, good things that come from God. We make them the excellent things and we begin to serve those things. God is so faithful at times to bring testing to remind us that he is the excellent one. Think about Job. 
how God is doting over him like a father, loving Job, so proud of Job. And Satan comes to God and says, but will he love you if you removed this from his life? If you took your hand off him and removed blessing, would he still love you for nothing? God, knowing that Job would, allows it to happen. Job, in some ways, thinking that God has abandoned him, but God has not. God has been faithful all the way through, and he's producing fruit in Job's life, fruitful living that comes through testing. But Job doesn't understand. And we're at the D.A. Carson conference this past weekend, and D.A. Carson says, God responds with a series of questions beginning in chapter 38. And this first question is, Job, I got some questions for you. So stand up and brace yourself for this. Like a man. Have you ever made a snowflake? Do you know what it's like to make consolations and place them in order? Say, Orion. When you call to the deer, does it run to you? Do you tame the lion? Do you tame Leviathan, the sea creature, so that it bows down to you and worships you? Do you understand these things, Job? And by chapter 42... 41, Job says, I repent in dust and ashes. I spoke of you with my mouth. My mind knew of you, but now I see you and I repent and I abhor myself in dust and ashes. And God seems to just love this idea that Job's heart is humble and supple towards God. And God begins to just restore Job's losses, not because of what he did, but because he wanted Job to see who he was. God brings testing sometimes. Some of you are going through incredible times of testing. You feel that God is not there. You feel abandoned. You feel abandoned by people. And as a result, you've sought for love in the, and, and a savior through other people and they've let you down. It will always happen. Fruitful living also not only involves testing, it involves living for something greater than ourselves. Look at verse 11. Paul says, so that you'd, I pray that you'd be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of God and praise of God. He says, I want you to live for something greater than yourself, the glory of God, that this glory before time began will extend until at, far after time ends. That God's story is so much larger, grander than mine. But not just living for the glory of God, the kingdom of God as well. As he says in verse 10, that there is a day coming when Jesus will return to this earth. And he will be the coming, the final king, the final authority. Living also, not only for the glory of God and kingdom, but also for the mission of God. As he says in verse 5, he talks to them as their gospel partners. They're on this mission together. Because love and fruitful living and fruitful loving doesn't happen in isolation. Our tendency is to move towards isolationism, towards individualism, but loving community happens together as we practice the one another's, as we are being continually sharpened by one another. That's why we do life groups. We don't do life groups for the sake of having a, a, a thriving church. God forbid us from ever trying to just have a thriving church. We do life groups because we want to obey God and we want to practice the one another. We want to put this knowledge into action and we want to practice this love. Now, this mission of God, Paul says, it's bigger than yourselves. 
talked to a guy yesterday who he knows that he's in his job. He doesn't really want to be there, but he's there. God hasn't given him release yet. And as we're talking, we know similar people. And as we're talking, we both become excited because the, the sense of God has you there because God's still working in their life to draw them to him. We just started praying for those people at his work. He sees his eight to five as something larger than just a paycheck in eight to five. It's something where God has him for mission. There's one pastor on staff who his neighborhood, it's uh, full of uh, all kinds of uh, ethnicities and backgrounds, religions, Buddhists, Muslims, uh, Jehovah's Witness, and they are starting to come to him for marriage counseling. They get together, they have block parties, they hang out together, they know one another. He sees his neighborhood as an opportunity for mission. So where is your mission? Where, is your, where, where do you see yourself called as a missionary? Paul says, I'm praying that you would have fruitful living, fruitful lives as a result of seeing your life as a part of a greater story than just your own. Don't we need that? All the time. <laughs> Holiday comes up, what, what happens? We start to see our lives in terms of ourselves. We start to see everything in terms of this smaller scope rather than seeing the larger scheme, the glory of God, the kingdom of God, the mission of God. But lastly, we measure this, or the power behind all of this is fruit that comes from abiding in verse 11. This is probably my favorite. He says, I pray that you'd be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Jesus says that apart from me, you can't bear fruit. That you could try moralism. You could try uh, uh, apocalyptic romance or the the right family structure, but you know what? You're going to fail. And even if you did all of the moral, uh, moral things that you could possibly do, it's not lasting fruit. It's not the fruit that, that I can produce in your life or that I even desire. All of us have sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus said, fruit comes through abiding in me. And then you'll bear much fruit. And that fruit will remain. It'll be lasting fruit. Paul says that, I pray that you'd be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ. And now here's the good news. It's because we've held on to position like these women in this church it's because of our pride. It's because we have failed to uh, lovingly live fruitful lives, fruitful loving, and we've not lived fruitfully. We've tasted of the fruit of sin, and we've run to rebellion against God, that Jesus then leaves his position, his high throne of heaven, and comes to humble himself for us proud sinners. And that Jesus, he says in John chapter 12, verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. Jesus says, because your life is, has not been a life of fruitful living and loving, this grain of wheat will be buried into the ground. He says, if it, re- if it remains alone, if it doesn't die, it won't bear fruit. But I will come, and I will be the one who's put into the grave so that you can bear much fruit. Jesus Christ then lives the perfect, loving, fruitful life 
on our behalf because we've not. Jesus Christ lives the perfect, fruitful life because we have not. This is the doctrine of justification. This is what theologians call imputed righteousness. That Jesus Christ legally gives me his righteousness through faith in him. I give him my sinfulness and wicked heart. Martin Luther calls it the great exchange. He imputes righteousness to me legally. God sees me as having perfectly loved, perfectly lived in a fruitful way. And all of my shame goes on Jesus. That Jesus himself is abandoned by his Father on the cross in my place so that you and I would never feel the abandonment of God. Because we've eaten of the fruit of sin, Jesus comes and lives a perfectly fruitful life on our behalf. And it's not just imputation, it's also impartation, imparted righteousness. That Jesus gives us a new heart, a new nature. We just don't knuckle under, trying harder. Jesus comes in by his Holy Spirit through the gospel and he begins to renew my desires renew my community, renew my motivation, renew my heart, and he gives me new instruction whereby I can know him. Philippians 1.6, Paul says to these people that he writes this letter to, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, he'll be faithful to complete it till the day he comes again. It's his work. To abide in Jesus means two things. One, we remember his work. Two, we remember how he feels towards us. Verse eight is where we end. He says, for God is my witness, Paul says, how I yearn for you with all of the affection, the word means like my gut, of Christ. I yearn for you with the love that Christ yearns for you. What does that mean? It means that God isn't just putting up with you. He loves you. He's not looking at you with a frown. It says that I yearn for you like in my gut level. You know, when I look at my daughters sometimes, five and three, and we have one on the way, as I said, when I see them at times, I literally hurt sometimes because of the sense of I want to protect them so much from the evil of this world. I so love them. And of course, by far, not a perfect dad. But my love for them makes me want to grow. In the same way, do you you understand where that came from? I didn't make that up. I'm a sinful man by nature. That's a divine thing placed into my heart from God himself. That when God looks at you, he doesn't just put up with you. He sees you as beautiful. So that you don't have to run other places for your beauty. You don't have to run other places for your acceptance. He accepts you on the basis of his finished work. You've got to remember his work. You've got to remember how he feels towards you. Paul says, I love you with the affection of Christ that comes at the gut level. That's where God sees you. That's how he feels about you. We read in John's letter, the Apostle John, by this we know love, that he laid his life down for us, that we ought to lay our lives down for our brothers. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart to him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in deed, but in truth. 
God help us. John says, beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God. He that does not love does not know God. For God is love. In this the love of God was made known to us. There's that word again. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Beloved, God loved us and sent his son to be the sin sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. As we come forward and we take communion, the fruit of the body broken for us, the fruit of the blood shed for us, we do so asking God to bear fruit in our lives through abiding in him, remembering his work, remembering his love. But we also not only remember, we come in repentance, humble repentance of what? Of placing good things as excellent things. Replacing the excellent one with merely the things that God has given to us to enjoy, to be good. We also come repenting of our self-love. We come receiving his love and repenting of, his, our, of our own fruitlessness. We come into the light to be sun-tested so that what is not of him can be burned away. We come openly. You come to the prayer team to the right and to the left, to receive prayer, to be open, saying, here's where I've tasted of the fruit of sin, and as a result, I feel like I'm just rotting. I need, I need to be in the light. I need to be sun-tested so that I bear fruit. We come repenting of our own religious works that's done apart from the grace of God so that we could find, we're trying to find acceptance through our religion. I call us today, by God's grace, to abide in Christ to live in relationship with him in a way that bears lasting fruit. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. Thank you that you perfectly bore fruit on our behalf because we have failed to, because we've run to rotten, bitter fruit that seemed to taste so sweet at first, but it left it just like rocks in our mouth. Lord, we come to receive your righteousness. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.